Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Middle East Studies. Um, my guest today is Ms. Hodei Yuen, who is a journalist and author based in Los Angeles. He has reported for Al Jazeera English, Pacific Standard, Anthony Bourdain's Parts Unknown, Online, Atlantic, Agence France Presse, South China Morning Post, amongst others. He speaks several languages. He won a 2015 EPPY award for an investigative feature on Chinese businesses in Latin America. He won a 2019 Frank McCourt Memoir Prize from the Southampton Review. His book, the topic of this day, of today's interview, uh, When We Were Arabs, which he co-authored with his grandmother, was listed as a best book of the year in 2019 by NPR, Middle East Eye, and several other publications. My feelings of pride in being Arab American are very different to feelings of white nationalism. I think that um, my, my feelings of pride are totally a reaction to white nationalism. There would be no need for me to feel any kind of pride in Arabness if I hadn't felt um, like that was a reaction to white nationalism and to white supremacy. My sense is that you've had this like sense of being Arab in the way that it manifests in the book and the way that you're speaking to me today, that it's been there for a very long time. What changed, what about the election? Did it shift it at all? Did it just like, what was, what was the impact of the election on your sense of being Arab and Arab American? So uh, when we were Arabs was a project that started with my grandmother long before um, Trump's presidency became a reality. And I think, uh, obviously, it wasn't really a reality up until election night. So I, I think that um, this kind of questioning or this kind of interrogation of what it meant to be an Arab was happening really in the aftermath of my grandfather's death when I was 16, so around 2004. And I think even well before that, or I think we just lived our lives without kind of interrogating certain identities or certain kind of term terminology or having a lexicon for what we were and what it meant. Uh, like we were, we were always doing Egyptian and Tunisian and Moroccan things. And we, and it was not the case as it is for some families that I've seen that we were only Egyptian, Moroccan and Tunisian in our bar mitzvahs and weddings and kind of special events. We, on a daily basis, ate Arab food. My grandparents spoke Arabic between themselves. They wished that I uh, were definitely more fluent in Arabic than I ended up being because I kind of pushed back against that. Um, so the the Trump administration and kind of the emergence of a less apologetic uh, racism than had existed in the United States before um, made it more urgent that me and my grandmother tried to tell these stories sooner than later. Um, tried to tell stories that kind of turned on their head concepts of race that people have accepted as gospel 
uh, from time immemorial. So um, we had initially started with a sense of urgency after the 2014 offensive against Gaza. And immediately after that, uh, there was the rise of Trump. And so it became more and more apparent to us that we had to kind of pick up the pace and push whatever uh, quarter of publishing would be receptive to this kind of story to take it and to uh, help get it out faster than they're accustomed to because publishing really moves at a glacial pace. I think as a, as a journalist, I was accustomed to trying to crank out a shorter form story in like 20 minutes. And that would be my, uh, my kind of metric of su- success is how fast I could work. And that's just not how people in publishing work with the exception of, uh, like very few circumstances, like how they published the the uh, Mueller report. So I think um, for so many reasons, I was kind of pushing for this to come out faster and faster. I think at every given turn, it felt like, well, I have to tell this story. At least if I can tell this story, I will have done my part to kind of try at least to stand against the tide of all of these things that I'm seeing not necessarily to reverse all of these trends. I don't think that me and my grandmother ever thought to ourselves, we're going to um, start a revolution. But you know, what starts a revolution is uh, individual conversations that kind of coalesce into something bigger. So uh, more than anything else, we just felt that we had to extricate ourselves from certain conversations that were happening on our behalf. And I think that that's uh, what the book sought to do. And in the immediate, I feel that it was successful in doing it, or at least I hope. No, absolutely. As I'm saying, I think the reception to it has been so positive. I think people have, I mean, I see people uh, tweeting out quotes from it. I definitely wrote down specific things that I thought I would want to revisit, especially about how you relate to Arabness and choice, um, which I think is really powerful. It's not something we think about is like how we choose our identities. Um, and how it manifests in ourselves. Like there were just all these instances where I thought that this wasn't just an intervention in terms of how to see Arabness or Jewishness, but I honestly thought it was about how we see ourselves, which is such an important conversation in today's day and age when different elements of our identity are being either marketed towards specific audiences or taken away from us if we're in the public sphere or, um, or we're told by society to be one thing or our families and maybe we're not. So I, I definitely felt like it was this, it was this great. And also just, oh, I have to tell you as a historian, I have not seen, and I don't mean this is disrespectful to your, to your, to your vocation, because I know so many wonderful journalists, but this was so respectful of history and you cite historians from those countries that you're covering. And I was so blown away because in academia, like it's so hard to get people to cite sources that are written originally in Arabic, secondary sources, like histories are written in Arabic. And I was just like, this, this was what I was waiting for. And this was such a clean, the way you also fold in history is so beautiful, like to this oral history that you're telling. And also, so it reminded me a lot of, have you read um, Michael Twitty's The Cooking Gene? Oh, no, I haven't. Oh, my God. You would, you would love it because you love food. It's this awesome, beautiful history of enslaved people. I highly recommend it. I'll, I'll, I'll send you the name and the, what's it called. But it reminded me a lot of the book because it's this family history. But at the same time, um, it has so much um, 
just well-nuanced history that is told at the same time. Like, it was just so masterful. Like, I'm going to definitely be assigning to my students. I'm already, like, making people read. Thank you so much. It's such an honor to my entire family. Like, it's surreal to hear you say it. I think, I think it's so important what you say about using historians from the region and and uh, empowering us to tell our own stories. I um, I don't want to shit on non-Arab writers about the Arab world, but I feel like, um, obviously, I want to hear our voices. Like, part of the whole process of going to... Uh, going of, of having the opportunity to sit with these documents and with the, these uh, reports and, and with various texts was, uh, was part of the Arab, the Arab homecoming of this book. It was, it was to interact with other Arabs on what Arabness means. I'm, I'm less concerned with what non-Arabs have to say about what constitutes Arabness. I think that that's extremely important. Uh, in this is that um, so many critics of the Arab identity are non-Arab and seem to have never given Arabs or Arab identifying people the, the floor on what constitutes Arabness and why it's empowering and whether it's universally empowering or whether there are certain moments where it isn't empowering. And obviously I stand with Arabness even in moments where I think Arabness de- deserves criticism and and falls into some of the same mistakes as other kinds of supremacy. But at the same time, um, there, for, for me, Arabness is overwhelmingly a, a liberation from a lot of different things. Uh, as you say, the, the choice of Arabness is something that is powerful to me. Uh, and, and that is something that should be instructive to different people who've conceived of themselves in the past as white, black, Asian, whatever the census considers them to be or whatever their college applications or job applications allow them to be. Uh, all of those things are farces. Anthropologists agree that there's more genetic differentiation within those perceived racial categories than among them. We, we all have a choice uh, in terms of whether we want to identify with certain legacies or not. And I think it's an important takeaway. I think that there were some people, especially in, in one of my homelands in, in Tunisia, who were extremely kind of critical of me brandishing the Arab identity because they don't brandish the Arab identity. And it's not to say that they don't um, see themselves as belonging to the same ethnic or national background as Jews. They very frequently do, especially in the Tunisian circumstance. There's the view that uh, even though there are, of course, instances of anti-Jewishness in society, that by and large, Jewish Tunisians are, are Tunisian in ethnicity and Jewish in, in religion. So um, I think that they were critical, or the people who I talked to were kind of wary of how I brandish Arabness because they felt that I would impose Arabness on anybody from an Arab country, and that's definitely not the case. I do think that Arabness is very much a choice in the way that any ethnicity is a choice and in the way that race simply doesn't exist scientifically. And I think that Arabness at the same time should and is in the way that it's used in the grassroots make room for um, several simultaneous identities. It shouldn't be a contradiction in terms to say that you're Phoenician and Arab. It shouldn't be a contradiction in terms to say that you're Amaziel and Arab. Uh, 
it, sh- the, all of these things should be a choice. And, uh, and I think Tunisia is a perfect example of how some people, for various reasons, and maybe you might criticize those, or maybe you might try to unpack them in a decolonial reading of them, but it's, it's fully within people's right within the Tunisian and other Arab circumstances to say that they don't identify with the Arab component of the Tunisian identity, which obviously can, contains multitudes. To my mind, Arabness is what ties Tunisia to, to uh, Egypt and what ties my grandparents to each other and what ties us all to Palestine and what ties us all to Yemen and and so many fights for dignity and life and um, and government accountability, which I think is a very Arab endeavor because it's been happening since the dawn of, of Arabness. So um, the choice component is key, as you say, and, and I choose it. I choose Arabness because it makes me feel that my grandparents are still alive and that their legacy is still alive and that I'm not um, part of kind of an Atlantis that's described by some other excellent writers about that, that bygone world. It's, it's not a bygone world to me. It is uh, one that exists very much in the future. It's very much hopeful and kind of forward looking and it takes from the past and learns from its mistakes because uh, I'm not nostalgic about the past. I don't think that it was magnificent or better than now. I think that there are certain things that I'm wistful for, but Obviously, the past laid the foundations for the colonization of Palestine and so many other forms of injustice we see nowadays that um, I'm certainly not nostalgic for that past. I definitely think that there are certain things that we can unpack about it and move forward if we so choose. So we talked about being Arab, and I wanted to ask you, just because it's on the cover of the book itself, what about being Jewish? What is what is that to you? And do you, and I love this about the book, the way you talk about Arab Jewish culture, and we talked a bit about this before I started recording, um, sort of where these intersections within culture lie, whether or not they should be considered intersections. Um, yeah, Jewishness, go. Jewishness. Um, I think that there are a lot of misconceptions of Jewishness precisely because the wrong people are empowered to define Jewishness. By virtue of being a faith, the Jewish identity should be very personal to everybody and everybody should be able to define it as they, as they wish. There is a kind of a, a community in the mundane space that is formed by the experience of, of Jewish people, experiences with anti-Jewishness, experiences with various kind of relationships to non-Jews, um, but very much like uh, Siona Sidon, the, the man who's in, instrumental in BDS in Morocco, who, who I interview in the book, I identify as Arab first, and Jewishness is a part of my identity that sort of qualifies as an adjective my Arabness. It, it, it specifies that I'm part of a very particular, uh, relatively small demographically um, proportion of a, a gigantic kind of immense Arab whole that spans all skin colors, a ton of different faiths, uh, thousands of miles. So so Jewishness is, I have said before, kind of an adjective that modifies my Arabness. Um, I am Jewish in faith. I am an Arab person of Jewish faith. I'm Arab first, and I am 
in matters of the spirit, in matters that govern uh, my view of the afterlife and and my kind of relationship or my view of what exists outside of this life, I am Jewish. I follow that path to God. I also don't see Judaism as an extremely different path to that God than uh, Islam, Christianity, and really any faith. So I, th- I think that there were elements of Islam that influenced our endemic Judaism that kind of went the way of the dodo after colonialism, and uh, that includes Zionism, that I would like to regain because I think that they could serve to make people question their intense Islamophobia in this moment when they use terms like Judeo-Christian. They seek to kind of extricate from that narrative Islam. That was not how it was for my family. My, my family very much viewed all of these as basically offshoots of the same religion and that if you did any of them well, you were probably going to heaven. We, we never, even though there is the concept in Judaism that, that the Jews are the chosen people, we never really acted that way. We never really paid attention to that, really, or thought that Jews were a chosen people. We thought, this is the religion of our ancestors. We will practice this particular path to God so that we can end up wherever they are. We do not think that we are superior to or are really fundamentally different from Muslims. Um, uh, really, we just didn't care. And really, if there was an element of the, the, the elements, and this is something that I describe in the book where Islam and Judaism and Christianity seem to overlap, seem to have been kind of cross-checked with each other in our, in our minds. So um, that, yeah, I, w- I would say that Jewishness is my spirit. Arabness is how I live my life in this life. And of course, there's some crossover between the two, but I'm Arab first and last. That's my first and last allegiance in this life. It's my first and last belonging. It's the way that I see my family and other people and feel that my family is, um, despite uh, them not existing anymore temporally, kind of still alive in the people that I encounter who also belong to this identity. So I have thoughts about where we're going to go next in this conversation because I have so many different conflicting questions, but I think one of the things that I wanted to ask, and, and you mentioned this a bit earlier, is I mean, the future as the di- Arab or, or Arabic speaking diaspora gets bigger and bigger and bigger, um, as it becomes more difficult to identify, and I think it will get a little bit more difficult before it gets any easier. I don't know what you think of that. To identify as Arab here, what is your hope? But also as we, we as the diaspora gets further and further and further from having lived in Arab majority or Arabic speaking majority countries, um, what is your hope for how we hold on to that identity and how we articulate that identity? That's such a beautiful question. I was thinking very recently about certain Arab things that existed in Los Angeles that no longer exist in Los Angeles. So for example, when I was young, Uh, My grandparents always used to watch Arab American music television on Saturday nights. It was on Channel 18. It was was run by a Lebanese Maronite community that still exists in Los Angeles. I know there was no kind of uh, en masse kind of departure of Arab Americans from Los Angeles. Uh, 
Uh, but at the same time, there's no more Arab American music television. A lot of the mostly Lebanese-run businesses that existed in Los Angeles at one point just no longer exist. And I think that what happened to them is what happens, for example, to a lot of, I mean, what happens to a lot of other American immigrant communities and, for example, to Chinatowns, like the phenomenon of Chinatowns. Los Angeles Chinatown is uh, ceasing to exist because of gentrification, but also because of upward mobility of that community. A lot of people who had to live in the kind of uh, shadow economy of Chinatown no longer have to because their kids had various opportunities that they did not and see no use in running old businesses that serve the community. And that, I think, is what happened with a lot of Lebanese Americans and other Arab Americans in the Los Angeles circumstances that um, there used to be a bakery called Nazrawis that no, that no longer exists. There was a, a, a record shop that my grandfather used to go to to buy Arabic records uh, where he used to hang out with like his little, his little Shabeb and he like no that no longer exists none of them exist because their kids more likely than not became doctors and lawyers and no longer needed to own kind of service industry businesses or didn't speak good enough arabic probably to to continue to import new records from egypt or whatever so what happens to that arab americanness does it just subside in the in the Los Angelino circumstance yes I don't know that um, I, I don't know that it shouldn't I don't know that people shouldn't be upwardly mobile I don't know that it's it's definitely not for me to say what should happen to these legacies for me it is a, a suffocating feeling that the Los Angeles that I knew as a child just n- no longer exists and it makes it so that when I go to Dearborn, I went to Dearborn last week and witnessed an Arab American community that is still very much Arab American and has enough new immigrants to keep it Arab American. Um, I felt this deep feeling of relief and like, why don't I live there? Because these people recalled to me who we were when I was growing up in Los Angeles. And, and I don't know that even when I encounter other Arab Americans who've kind of gone through that process of acculturation that I recognize myself. And I don't know what the answer is to reclaiming that. I also don't know, and it would not be for me to say what Arabness is for those people. Maybe they consider themselves to be very Arab. I don't think that because my family ate bamiya and couscous and we listened to Amr Diab and all kinds of stuff that that made us more or less Arab than other Arab American immigrants in Los Angeles at the time. I don't know that not owning an Arab business anymore makes you less Arab. I don't know that not speaking a a decent Arabi makes you less Arab. So I think that these are questions that are extremely uh, individual. I know that for myself, uh, to be Arab and to be Arab American is to belong to other Arab Americans and to other Arabs and to try to seek them out and to have these conversations like the one that I'm having with you right now, this is where Arabness exists to me, is in the abstract space that we've created in this conversation. This is where Arab Americanness is allowed to exist and to thrive. And it's not only because we were raised by parents who were still from and still remembered the Arab world. I think that there are Arab Americans, especially in, in Dearborn and back East, who are third and fourth generation Syrian and Lebanese Americans who I would never tell are less Arab or less Arab American than I am. 
certainly not me, especially because for a Jewish person to, to be able to reclaim Arabness is, is a relatively new phenomenon. So it wouldn't be for me to tell them what Arabness is. And I know that there are so many of them who go into Arab American studies because they're also trying to answer this question. I think that if I'm asking this question right now, it's because I've heard a lot of other Arabs, not just Jewish Arabs, but all kinds of Arabs and Arab Americans asking this question, what is an Arab? I think that that question is one that the Arab world was starting to ask just as my family left. Like within the century before my family left, people were starting to ask themselves what constitutes Arabness, what constitutes Arab solidarity, uh, is it a language, should it have a religious component, uh, who is allowed to claim it. Um, I think that even historically, uh, people had certain questions about about this and that we're still answering this for for ourselves. What is Arabness? The people who reject Arabness as a term, they almost inevitably have a political reason for doing so. I, I have my political reasons, but I state them up front. That's the difference between the two of us. My reclaiming Arabness is to stand together with Arab and Muslim people at a time when they're increasingly under siege by white supremacy the world over. Uh, the, the reason why some people reject Arabness, I would say, is uh, because they have been taught or they hope to present Arabness as something fundamentally wicked, barbaric, backward. And I want them to interrogate the reasons for that. I think that there are a lot of well-meaning people who do that in a knee-jerk fashion who don't know necessarily that they're supporting a white supremacist kind of uh, dynamic through or lens through which to view the world. I, I want them to start asking themselves that question because we do not have the time for them to figure it out. They need to start asking themselves that question now. Why does Arabness incense you? Why does the, the concept of Arabs existing incense you? Why does the Jewish belonging to Arabness and Arabness belonging to Jewish Arabs who, who claim that identity incense you? What about you is feeding this and the international rise of fascist administrations? Ask yourselves that question. Ask yourselves that question now. We do not have time for you to figure it out. There is so much wonderful just layered in there, so much nuance. Um, it, I especially identify with what you said about it not necessarily being about the ability to speak Arabic well or not questioning someone else's Arabness, because I think that's a really big issue, is that no matter what community you're from, religious, cultural, whatever, um, there's this tendency to excommunicate, to say, I am holier than thou. I am more Arab than thou. I am more Muslim than thou. I am more Jewish than thou. I am more gay than thou. Like, I have seen this tendency over and over again. I mean, um, with with Muslims in particular, this shapes the Muslim American community in a certain way. With the LGBT community, this has led to the marginalization of people of color. Um, which we saw with, um, darn it, the nightclub shooting, um, the 2016 Pulse. Oh, I mean, we saw that happen again and again and again and how the press responded and how the community responded to that. I mean, there are so many layers to, and I, I see this with people who don't want to identify as Arab American because they can't speak Arabic. And in particular, I mean, it's, and again, like you said, upward mobility is something that 
us immigrant communities in the U.S., immigrant communities are, they come to the U.S. and the major question is survival. And I completely understand the self-preservation of wanting to make sure that you assimilate, that you blend in, that you watch baseball with your neighbors, that you adopt certain accents. And we hear this with people who, you know, adopt the, the accent of their city pretty quickly. I mean, my father grew up in the West Bank. He came to the U.S. at 18. His American accent is better than mine. Um, and I grew up with two parents with American accents. Which linguistically must have been so difficult for him, because I heard that 15 is kind of the cutoff to speak as a native speaker. I mean, you can, you can sense from your father the kind of urgency of trying to model himself after what is considered to be American, which is whiteness, unfortunately. That accent is a, a white American accent that we are shoehorned into. Yeah. And then, for example, the hobbies that he fell into, he learned how to ski at 18. And he, and I can tell that even though we all enjoy skiing as a family, um, that that's something that comes from a particular legacy and an aspiration to a certain class. Um, what was I going to say? Um, I mean, I also applied, I think, for you being Arab and identifying as Arab, as an Arab Jew in the public sphere must be so incredibly difficult because there is, in particular, I mean, the Palestine of it all and the identification of certain causes in the American context with Palestine, um, be it sort of the alliance between the evangelical Christian movement with um, Zionism, um, be it sort of how even like, liberal institutions identify Zionism as an ally. And I wanted to ask you about that because I'm sure as someone in the public sphere, it must be difficult for you to have published a book like this where you're, I mean, as you asserted earlier, very proudly Arab and also very clear about your political um, commitments. I mean, what was, how is the reception, where is the Palestine of it all is my question. Sure. I, I think before I found my current agent, who I love as a brother, and before I found this publisher, who I very deeply respect, they've published a number of other great books, The New Jim Crow, a lot of things that I uh, just admire deeply. Uh, I was in talks with various other people in publishing who told me to tone down uh, the Palestine of it all. And by tone down, they meant mute it so uh, that it would become palatable and acceptable to people who are maybe uh, advanced enough in their thinking or their progressivism to accept that someone would choose Arabness instead of uh, just criticize it to death, um, but not advanced enough or progressive enough in their thinking that they have started to refuse to turn a blind eye to the genocide uh, that is happening against the Palestinian people right now. And my response to those people who told me to tone that down or mute it is a resounding never. Never. The Palestine of this book is not the entirety of the book. I think it would also be a mistake for me to say that this is a book about Palestine or a book about Zionism. This is a book about Jewish Arabs. The main purpose and the paramount uh, agenda of this book is to claim Jewish Arabness. And uh, being an anti-Zionist is not a prerequisite for that. I would say that being an Arab means standing together with the Arab people. And I would say that 
you would have to embrace a logical kind of disconnect to look at what's happening to Palestinian people, reject that and still claim the Arab identity. I don't, I don't know how you would do those mental gymnastics. I will say that even though it is not the entirety of this book, it is definitely the most urgent part of this book. The Palestine of this book is the most urgent part of this book because the lost world that I am trying to regain, it's very sad that it no longer exists. It is devastating to me and uh, disfigures me in so many ways, but I continue to live in Los Angeles with or without that world as much as it pains me to say so. There are people's lives that are on the line right now, people who are being killed with absolute impunity for having the gall to say that they exist. This book exists for them. It is, uh, the Palestine of this book is a crucial component of this book. It is not the entirety of this book. It is a crucial component of this book. I say that not just because I want to prize the Jewish Arabness of this book, because that is something that needs to be the main takeaway of this book. I say that because I'm not a Palestinian. I say that because I'm hoping that once people start to give Arabness the respect and dignity that it deserves, that I can hand the mic over to an actual Palestinian person who can finally start to tell her own story. I think that there are a lot of Palestinian people who are endeavoring to do that. I think that the American public is is amply ready to hear the stories told by Palestinian people. I think that it is a time more than ever for Palestinian people to be given the mic and to be allowed to say what the future should look like for them and what the past has looked like and what it has been for them and what their existence is and what the, what that should mean for the future of the Palestinian people, not just the Palestinian citizens of Israel, not just the Palestinian citizens of the PA, for international Palestinians who have been incubating the Palestinian nation since the Nakba. What, what, um, what I loved about this book was the sense of nostalgia that um, it runs through it. And I, it's, it's so, I mean, it's just, it's tear inducing. And in particular, what the book made me think about was this question of Palestine, but also the book's subjects, which are people like your grandparents primarily, um, in addition to yourself, of course. And it made me think of all the people like your grandparents that were erased because we don't talk about that. We don't talk about the pre-existing Jewish, the people who existed in what we now recognize as Palestine, Israel, whatever you wish to call it. Um, that strip of land, you know, three, 200, 300 years ago, the people who, you know, occupied a certain place in society, who engaged with Muslims and who lived with Christians, who, you know, felt very close culturally to their, I mean, did not see themselves as different. And the people who I might have had a chance to meet and engage with had politics been very different, had these identities not been collapsed, had Israel not treated people the way they did and created this system where Jews who came from Arab lands who might identify as Arab were reduced to the lowest echelons of society. Um, and it, it, in particular, that was, that was what I took away from it in terms of the Palestine of it all. In addition to the fact that I thought that the Zionist groups would not be happy with you and just the public beating you must be taking. Um, in addition to, of course, all the praise, but, um, yeah, that's 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 where I began to think a lot about Palestine is what was lost in that regard. Um, so we haven't talked at all, like specifically, we've mentioned your grandparents, but we haven't talked about them 
specifically and how they their presence in the story. And I was wondering if you could tell us just a bit about them, but also your memories of them and how they sort of set a standard for being Arab for you. Sure. Um, I think that toward the end of, I mean, their, their commitments to Arabness or their senses of self uh, as Arabs were very different. I think that my grandfather, and there were policy reasons for this, of course, there was in the French education systems that existed in Tunisia and in Egypt, very different policies about de-Arabization versus re-Arabization. When uh, Egypt fell under British control, a policy in the school system that had sought to de-Arabize Jewish communities as a means of turning them into kind of colonial go-betweens was reversed uh, in a very kind of transparent attempt by Paris at the time to inspire uh, feelings of nationalism and a call for independence among Jewish Egyptians. So my grandfather was much more keen to embrace the Arab identity than my grandmother. And that wasn't a personal choice. This was a policy directive that came from offices in a faraway country. Um, in, in Tunis, there was no need to re-Arabize the population because it already fell under French control. So there was no policy in the French school systems that that encouraged a re-Arabization process. So my grandfather was... Uh, a fluent uh, reader and writer in Fusha in, in Egyptian and in Moroccan. My grandmother only spoke Tunisian dialect and Jewish Tunisian dialect. She didn't know how to write it. Her parents were also illiterate in Arabic. Uh, so I think that an important element of the book is that I never kind of represent my grandparents as a perfect sort of Arab past they had very different relationships to Arabness. They had very kind of different levels of identification with a transnational uh, or even a national Arabness. And there, the, the importance of that, and I think that me and my grandmother sort of came to this conclusion later, was that that wasn't a choice that they made, as I said, but that was a policy directive that transformed itself into or that translated into how Arab they were or weren't in Los Angeles when I was growing up. You're very clear that what your grandparents went through and some of the attitudes in which they adopted, I mean, you're very gentle, you're never critical, you're very understanding and very nuanced, but that they were being stripped of their Arab identity by colonialism. Um, And the book is very much of sort of the decolonization movement that many people in diaspora, many people living within the countries we're speaking about are beginning or have been for many years um, are adopting and beginning to have these conversations about how different parts of our history, of our stories, of our cultures or religions were taken from us um, by colonialism, by imperialism. And I was wondering if you could speak more to that specifically is colonialism within your own family and the effect it had on your family. And I think you, you call it rupture in the book. That's the chapter where you address this head on. And I was wondering if you could speak to sort of the impact that you felt it had on you, but also the way you portrayed it in the book. Yeah. I think that um, 
it was very unlike my family to try to, I mean, it was very like my family to never accept that they were victims for any given reason. Uh, like, for example, when I was little, one of our neighbors, not our immediate neighbors in our neighborhood, but this random guy uh, kind of came to our home and started attacking my grandmother and saying that she was a housekeeper for our family because she was a darker woman who was living in this house uh, when she was the homeowner. And my grandmother never talked about that again. You could see how she, how mortified she was in that circumstance, but it was never acceptable to her to discuss systemic issues with uh, racism and uh, discrimination uh, in the way that we struggle to talk about them with great pain in modern day progressive circles. Like that was not how they viewed themselves. They never, they very seldom, my, my grandfather very seldom talked about what Israel meant for Jewish Arabs in his generation. Uh, he also very seldom talked about instances of anti-Jewishness that he faced in Egypt. We, we never could stomach to see ourselves as victims. So to look at what the colonies had done to our family and to ask ourselves questions about how uh, certain projects made us stateless was a uh, an emotional undertaking, very rare for us. Uh, there were aspects of colonialism from which my family benefited. That's also very important for people to understand is that the, the people who kind of co-opted Jewish Arab communities, the French and British imperialists had envisioned our communities as go-betweens because we were small components of really every single country throughout the Arab world. There were, there were certain carrots and sticks that were given to us within the colonial framework. So there were certain benefits that were accorded Jewish Arabs in Algeria. They were en masse given French citizenship. Um, they were allowed to live in European sectors. They were allowed to do certain things that only wealthy Jewish Arabs and wealthy Muslim and Christian Arabs were allowed. There were a lot of poor Jewish Arabs who were relegated to the colonial, the indigenous sector together with Muslims and with Christians. But there were specific policies that privileged Jewish Arabs, Jewish Arab subjects and citizens. The sticks were that there were, uh, for, for a small community, that lived a, a precarious existence since time immemorial, there were a significant number of people who stood together with uh, national independence projects and projects to uh, establish a transnational Arab solidarity that could cast off the yoke of colonialism. Those people were uniformly thrown in prison and tortured. Uh, Habiba Masika is a very famous circumstance. She was a, a sort of a libertine pan-Arabist Tunisian singer, and she was thrown in jail for, for singing for Tunisian independence and singing uh, songs for Egypt and for Syria and for brandishing the Tunisian independence flag on stage and inspiring people like Bourguiba to usher in the republic in Tunisia. She, she was thrown in jail on multiple occasions. There were Jewish Egyptian communists who had very deep feelings of Egyptianness and belonging to the Arab world, who the 
monarchy at the time routinely threw in jail, tortured, and punished in a number of other ways. There were people who were exiled from their countries for um, supporting Arabist uh, independent pro- independence projects in Egypt and across our region. So the way that it happened was through education. The way that it happened was through um, colonial administrations welcoming us into their fold, but always at a distance because there was always still very deeply felt anti-indigeneity and anti-Jewishness. And then there were people who suffered and who sacrificed a great deal because of their feelings of Arabness and belonging to their nations and to a broader transnational Arab world. To look at these things and to kind of review these documents uh, and to apply these ideas and to even to read the works of Frantz Fanon and to kind of view my family through this lens was so counterintuitive to us precisely because of the phenomena that I described, precisely because uh, maybe due to pride and maybe due to a certain sort of superstition that we have that talking too much about sad things brings more sad things, we, we never were predisposed to asking these questions of ourselves. Also, my family were stateless for a given moment. They didn't have the opportunity. My grandmother did go to night school in the United States and is kind of a success story in that way. But we were never, uh, we never had the luxury of a decolonial education or an education in decolonial literature. So it had just never been impressed upon us that there was this lexicon that existed for describing things like Orientalism or for describing an indigenous sector versus a European colonial sector. We never had that. So I was, as the first to go to college in my family, able to read those books and to ask those questions and to encounter decolonial minds who set me on that course of thinking. There were, of course, a great many scholars, including uh, in the North African circumstance, Abraham Serfati, and in uh, the Jewish Iraqi uh, circumstance, Ella Shahat, and uh, Rachel Shabi in the circumstance of, of Jewish Arabs who lived in Israel. Um, there were a lot of people who came before who helped uh, me to ask these questions about my family. And to them, I'm always grateful. And and also, of course, to Lucette Lagnado, who passed last week, her, her account, all of these accounts helped to set me on this course to thinking more decolonially and kind of applying um, these thoughts to what happened to us back in our homelands and then what ended up happening to us in Palestine and to what ended up happening to us in the United States and these various echelons of colonial administration and the way that they made us really self-loathing people. I think that the way that colonialism manifested itself in the immediate for me as a child was a sense of self-loathing on so many echelons and so many facets of, of our life. We detested who we were. We hid it. We detested other people of our background who had not had the grace and intelligence to Europeanize themselves or Americanize themselves in a white sense. Uh, this is very much a book, not necessarily just about the triumph of certain decolonial feelings, but about self-loathing and overcoming that self-loathing.
but also that self-loathing that continues to exist, not just for Jewish Arabs, but a great many people who lived in our countries. I think it's very much something, an experience that we share that strengthens our Arab identity, that we went through this process of self-loathing. I will say that I have encountered and I've had conversations with people who have questioned why they reject the Arab identity and the way that non-Jewish Arabs who have been vehemently anti-Arab and called themselves Phoenicians, for example, they too are starting, I think, to question why the Arab identity is so unctuous to them that they wish to identify with any other kind of historical identity marker than Arabness. Self-loathing is a universal Arab condition that we have to emerge from that exists in many ways. If you can prove to me that you are a Phoenician Tunisian or a Phoenician Lebanese person and do not hate Arabs for racial or post-colonial reasons or continuing colonial reasons, by all means, I'd love to hear that and I respect that. I do not respect rejections of the Arab identity that endeavor to destroy the Arab identity, to debase it, to tease out existing or exacerbate existing tensions within what I find to be Arab societies. There you go. I really, I, again, think that that's an extremely nuanced take on this particular issue and allows for people to express things in different ways. And I mean, that's another great thing about the book is that because it's this journey in time, you see how Arabness is expressed at different points in time. And again, you're sympathetic to the characters in it and how your grandparents encountered this. And what another sort of facet of this um, that I really enjoyed was the way you talked about pop culture, because there are all these moments where you talk about films and music and things that are such a big part of our consciousness, if it's something that your family consumed around you, but also because pop culture is something that can so easily be consumed individually, it's something that I find that when people really want to reclaim their culture, they go to the songs, they go to the movies, um, especially because so much of that's accessible right now. And you're very careful to say, well, look, like, you know, you can enjoy these films. There is also this, men- I mean, there's this wonderful moment where your grandmother points out that, um, the extras in the film are not Arab. Um, they're European. And I, I absolutely love that moment. It reminds me of um, in contemporary Bollywood films where all of a sudden there's a bunch of white people in saris being the backup dancers for any particular scene. Um, and yeah, it says something about what people value. Um, but it's funny because there are also these markers of culture in so many different ways, these classic films, but also the music they convey. Um, there's moments of rupture and continuity, even in the same moment. Um, So I was wondering in particular, now that your grandparents, unfortunately, are no longer with us, um, how do you, how is, what is your relationship with pop culture like? Because my sense is that it was always conveyed through your family. Sure. Um, I mean, sometimes I think I fall into the trap of kind of performatively, uh, enjoying certain very American pop culture because I feel like that ingratiates you to a, a broad array of people in America. And I think that that's kind of disingenuous sometimes. And so I've tried to stop doing it. Like if it's not Beach House, 
I, do, I don't listen to American music anymore. I listen exclusively to the Arabic music of my grandparents' generations. That's the music that I was raised with. That to me is the, the kind of, from the words that I understand of it, the, the feelings that inspire me. Uh, I do think that pop culture is a kind of a lingua franca, for lack of a better term, with so many other Arab Americans. Like if I uh, discuss things like Asmahan and Abdel Halim and uh, uh, Abdel Wahab, a lot of people are able to connect with me over that, and that makes me feel like my grandparents aren't dead. So there's kind of a immortality in watching Ghazal al-Banet and Leila Murad. And to be able to share that with other people makes me feel less like the world that existed for my grandparents died with them. It makes me feel more like actually a really large group of people have had very similar experiences and know what I talk about when I say, I miss this, or this is where I felt home. Um, yeah, pop culture is ex an extremely important part of this. It, it really, I, I start the book saying this, but I wish that I could share with even more people these elements of pop culture that were so important to the way that, that my grandparents transmitted our identity to me. I, I want it to exist very broadly because the more it exists, the more alive they remain. Uh, yeah. I completely identify with that. I think that, I mean, there, were, there was the moment in which all of this pop culture was produced. Um, and that moment has passed, but I think as we get older and as we begin to really understand sort of why our families played Abdul Halim um, or whoever they favored um, in the background, as we begin to share these moments, just to quote you again, you know, these, these conversations that we have with one another, as we begin to share these moments of pop culture convergence with other people that's really where we begin to create new memories and begin to sort of extend the life of these, of these instances. And in particular, there's all these, you know, rewatching an Um Kulthum concert with a friend, um, watching the performance of a certain song or um, enjoying a film and, and realizing that you have moments of divergence and convergence in certain things. It's just, I think as we continue to enjoy these spaces um, and also to enjoy what's being produced right now and the celebration of our culture in so many different ways, um, just across the whole spectrum um, is another place that I find sort of a lot of uh, solace. I really like it, for example, when, you know, you get, an Arabic language or a, an Arabic language rock band. And they have these moments of, you know, true rockiness that pulls on, you know, the Beatles or the who or whoever, but then they have these moments where they, and in equal measures, um, invoke Shabi music or Farab. And it's this moment of just like, okay, this is speaking to me in a way. So what is your relationship to the countries that your grandparents came from? How do you view them? How do you, because I mean, it seems to me throughout this conversation that you negotiate and center your identity in the present. It's in conversations, it's in experiences, it's in memories even, which I think are very much a part of our present, even though we think of them as things of the past. It's in this book, which again, is an accomplishment. So great. Um, so what is your relationship to these places? Is is that necessarily important? Or if it is important, how is it important? 
I think it's I think it's the centerpiece of my Arab identity is my relationship to these places. I think that um, more than more than even the culture that we talk about, which is such an important part of it, it's um, and and very much what recalls to me my grandparents is the cultural just kind of manners and interests really recall to me very specific kind of things about my family. Um, but Arabness is entirely useless to me if it's not about my relationship to other Arab people and about my relationship to humanity more broadly. I think that um, whenever I go back, I feel very much at home very excited to be there and kind of almost like I'm recharging for the West. Like I, I can't live in the West for too long without going back and not necessarily just to my family's countries, really to any Arab country, any Arab country. They are so vastly different and so intensely similar and so intensely familiar in different ways that in any Arab country, I witness certain things that really recall to me my family. And I don't know if that's because my family comes from what is more politically known as North Africa and from Egypt that I guess is closer to the Middle East. And in my grandfather's Alexandria, there was such a a huge kind of Levantine influence that that part of the world is kind of true to us too. But even in the Khalij, like I was able to find elements of things that's that felt true to me or that resonated with me or that reminded me of things my grandparents had talked about or kind of cultural and other kind of forms of belonging my my relationship to those countries is very different to morocco egypt and tunisia is very different so my grandfather always identified himself uh I would say in a pretty kind of, I mean, his, his identity was nuanced because he was a Moroccan who identified with Moroccanness as kind of an original identity and identified very much with Egyptianness as a, a, a more sophisticated to his mind identity than the Moroccan one. Uh, again, because in my family's consciousness, Morocco had been a, a poor country and they had left to go to Egypt, which was an opulent country that a lot of people in the Mediterranean were going to at the time. Um, So my grandfather thought that to be Egyptian, even though he was only half Egyptian by ethnicity, was a a marker of sophistication. So Morocco, even though he had never been there, was was our identity, especially in Los Angeles. I went to a predominantly Moroccan uh, synagogue as a child. the Moroccan identity was always important to us on a spiritual level as well. Uh, Maghrebi Judaism is is very different to other kinds of Judaism uh, that uh, very much influences how we are spiritually as well as in terms of our ethnic identity. So when I go back to Morocco, um, I do very much feel that I'm going back to my family's country. I do love that country. I have a lot of friends in that country, maybe uh, more friends than even in Tunisia and in Egypt. When I go back to Tunisia, I feel very much a sense of belonging to that country because legally you, you are able to obtain Tunisian citizenship through the mother. It's, it's one of the few exceptions to this 
rule of sexist uh, citizenship in the Arab world that continues to dispossess uh, so many people with Palestinian fathers of different kind of national ident- uh, national papers in Jordan and in Egypt, for instance. So um, I feel very much a kinship with Tunisia, very much a pride in, in uh, Tunisia and the strides that it's made to kind of cultivate civil society and to push back against instances of a lack of accountability and the rule of law. Uh, I feel a kind of a citizenship or a national pride to Tunisia. Uh, also, Tunisia is such an exceptional country. If you've been there, it's it's very small and exceptional. And my and my it seems to reflect my grandmother in that way. My grandmother was under five feet tall and very exceptional and a very classical kind of Tunisian woman in the sense that uh, yes, there were kinds of misogyny that she lived, but she was also a very powerful woman who refused on numerous occasions uh, to be uh, oppressed. And to my mind, that is Tunisian womanhood. I, I, I see that among a lot of Tunisian women. Uh, and I see it among a lot of Arab women, and it's a narrative that's often kind of disregarded that so many Arab women throughout history have sacrificed their families and their personal safety for the sake of of uh, liberation for women and femme people in the Arab context. Uh, in terms of Egypt, I had a... I discussed this in the book. I, I went back to Egypt to see something of my grandfather. It was a very difficult trip to, for me. It was the first Arab country that I'd ever been to. It was, uh, I was not prepared. I feel more equipped to go back to Egypt now, but because I was a reporter for Al Jazeera, I feel that it would not be safe, or at least I've been told by my fellow Al Jazeera colleagues to um, really second guess ever trying to go back to Egypt. Um, my hope is for Egypt as well as uh, Morocco, uh, which uh, sent a representative to the Bahrain conference on, but not including any Palestinian uh, stakeholders uh, in the discussion of their future for them, uh, that Egypt, Morocco, and even Tunisia, even though Tunisia has been a more steadfast supporter, and thankfully so, of Palestinian lives, as well as Jewish-Tunisian lives simultaneously. Um, my hope is that all of those countries will recognize their responsibility, not just as Arabs, but as human beings, to uphold uh the dignity of the Palestinian people and to preserve their lives in the face of all of this bloodshed. Um, That said, I'm very proud of Egypt. I I hope that Egypt will remain integral to many sorts of solidarity that it has expressed historically for the Palestinian people and for other Arab peoples. And to prove to me that, that a sort of pan-Arabism that of course needs to be, um, revisited and restructured really did exist in earnest and does exist in earnest um, and that it can be a pluralistic kind of beautiful pan-Arabness in the future. I, I love Egypt. When I encounter Egyptians, I am with them. I uh, very much hope that we can live in an Arab world that's in solidarity with itself. That's how I feel. Oh, that's the great hope. And I think it will take a lot of work. <laughs> but I think that it is possible. Um, it's just the current state of politics is just very, it's very good at pitting people. I don't know, there's this long history, I think, of Arab nations pitting us against one another. And 
reminding us of our differences and not asserting, A, the diversity within their own countries and the importance and the strength of that, but also um, the importance and the strength of our diversity across the Arabic speaking and the Arab nations. Like it, it is truly a tragedy that we are in a, we are, we live in an environment where refugees are turned away um, and we neglect to think of the richness that they bring to our communities, um, but also just the sheer need to be compassionate to our fellow man. Someone should be admitted to a country, not because of the skills they have, but because they need help. Um, it's it's really, it's tragic because I think often that what's been happening to Palestinians for much of the last century is now being visited upon the people of Yemen and the people of Syria and the people of Libya and Iraq. Um, this, this, I mean, Palestinians, and you see this in our pop culture, we've always been told that we, 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 always, we know that we have to go it alone and that no one will stick up for us. But it's sad to see that visited upon easily half of the Arabic speaking world right now. And, and to see like hate rhetoric I mean, it's not dissimilar to what's happening here, just hate rhetoric driving people against one another and communities and, yeah. Anyway, um, I do want to talk about how you gathered sources for this book, because obviously you worked on it with your grandmother, but and we talked about sort of the histories you consulted, but I was wondering specifically, maybe this is me being sort of technical and nerdy about note-taking, what were the conversations with her like? Did you, how did you sort of sit down and talk to her? How did you document this? Who else did you speak to other than your grandmother? Um, I think when we started out, and and you can kind of tell this in the book, there was more of a desire for this to be a journalistic project. So I interviewed a few people and there were those interviews. Um, but hopefully the book you'll see kind of takes like a, a very some very strange turns uh, structurally. So I tried to look at the same spaces uh, in time and place um, first through uh, first with a view toward what was Arab about them, and then to uh, uh, with a view toward what was colonized about them. And uh, it became more important to me to kind of assess policy documents and the politics of the situation and kind of put them together with the personal insofar as the personal is always political. So uh, speaking practically about how the interviews with my grandmother worked, they were kind of traditional interviews. I would sit next to her with my computer just typing, but she was also in her spare time writing the last iteration of several autobiographies or autobiographical accounts that she had written over her life over the course of her life. And she was in the process of writing the last of three steno notebooks about her experience in America when she died. So it was with her own written accounts, with my grandfather's written accounts, and with other kind of writing from my family. We had kept a lot of letters from abroad that my, that my grandfather's family sent from uh, Tel Aviv at the time, and that my grandmother's family had sent from Paris. So there were uh, kind of a, a plethora of voices from our family that we had to put together. And then because my grandmother had family who were involved in Tunisian government, there were written accounts that those people had, and there were people who had witnessed them in their lives who kind of described them in, in ways that were more disparaging than others. Sometimes there were Orientalist writings 
uh, from French writers that kind of described some of my ancestors in a very kind of creepy, disgusting way. So there were all kinds of just different writing that happened. And then I was in the stacks at UCLA and the LA Public Library and making special requests for policy documents that had existed um, so long ago that have been obscured or that are only in French or in Hebrew right now and that uh, it became necessary for me to look at to understand what's happening and to find a way to kind of fold them in, in to use uh, that kind of culinary terminology in a way that would produce something cohesive that you know, wouldn't be half-baked in the end. So that was basically the experience of drawing on these documents is I would look also at the academia on both my family specifically and then other people and, and our countries and what was happening at the time. And as you said before, like made a conscious effort to try to look at what people from our own countries have to say about themselves as opposed to people who are, are enthusiasts about our countries. And to follow their research through to primary source documents, that was pretty much my MO in all of this, was I have this wealth of material from my family. Um, thankfully, before my grandmother died, she had already written about her time in America. I had all of these written accounts from my family uh, and on my family. And then I would go to academics primarily of our region and read what they had to say and also follow kind of the links through to primary source documents that exist, maybe 20 copies in circulation in the entire United States and kind of make, make requests, ask for those books, read them, uh, try to pick out some salient points uh, and present them in, in such a way that they worked together with private accounts to kind of illuminate them and better understand them. 